That's you, Brent. <laughs> I'm typing notes for the okay. show. Okay. So, good to go? Yeah. Okay. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to episode 20 of the Hot Isle. That's a, it's a huge thing for... Uh, for number 10, we had to specially invite uh, Chad Sackage with us. And uh, for number 20, uh, we went even higher on the order if you could do such a thing. And um, so, you know, this week with us, we have Mitchell Hashimoto. And uh, Mitchell is one of the co-founders of HashiCorp. So thank you very much for joining the show, Mitchell. Cool. Thanks for having me. And of course, uh, you know, this week we've also, as usual, it's myself, Brian Carpenter, and I've got my co-host. Brent Piatti, good morning. Uh, awesome, Brent. And um, look, the, go, the goal of the show this week, we're going to educate you on some more uh, open source software, some awesome stuff in the industry. Uh, HashiCorp in general has a, a fantastic reputation with stuff like Vagrant, which is the only one that I really per- personally experienced. Um, but they have a ton of other tools. They have Auto and a couple other ones that just came out. Um, there was a, there's vault, which I'm very interested in as a, as having a security background. And we're going to get into a lot more of that. Um, but you know, in general, we're really trying to talk about it automation, uh, infrastructure as code and how we can kind of maximize the developer and operator agility kind of stuff. Um, if you're uh, easy for me to say, if you're familiar with EMC code, uh, a lot of the project delivery methods are actually using vagrant. So we have scale IO on vagrant and a bunch of other stuff like that. So, uh, you know, our, our guest seems very uh, keenly important to kind of all the things that we're talking about with people today. Uh, so again, Mitchell, we can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, really appreciate you being here. Again, thanks for having me. I'm excited, excited to talk about this stuff. So, um, you know, currently you're the co-founder of HashiCorp. I guess it's, it's named after you in some, <laughs> in some semblance. So is yes. that because your partner's last name wasn't cool as uh, it was, I think his last name starts with a D, right? Dadgar. Uh, no, his, his last name's pretty cool, especially because it means uh, architect. But, um, but no, um, so that was just uh, when we started the company, um, we, we couldn't figure out a name, and uh, we were throwing things around, and he had no, we, we've been best friends for a long time, so he, he knew some of these things about me, and he knew that my last name meant bridge. Uh, Hashi, the Hashi part in Hashimoto meant, meant bridge. Um, and also, I was sort of the one that always went out and spoke at conferences and things like that. And when we were starting the company, um, he basically brought up that, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have some name recognition like behind it in some way, given that I've been speaking at conferences for a few years at the time. Uh, and then we, but really we liked the idea of bridging and, and the bridges because uh, the goal with our company has always been to be able to uh, support the hot new thing and sometimes build the hot new thing, but at the same time be very, uh, aware of the fact that you know big companies even medium-sized companies can't change their practices overnight so trying to bridge people forward uh, to the new thing so all our tools um, do their best to support you know physical hardware virtual machines as well as containers as the most I guess obvious example but also multiple cloud systems and things like that so you're building you're building hashis to help out dadgars <laughs> yeah yeah nice okay that's <laughs> awesome I, I love it so um and you know you have a really unique background right there's a, a lot of really cool things there's a great uh it's a business insider article and a couple other ones uh i mean really you've been more successful since you were 12 than i have in my entire lifetime so we want to get into all <laughs> we want to get into all of those things um so you know let's let's rewind uh quite a bit and let's go all the way back to 
um, when you were 12. There's a, a pretty well-known story. And um, that well-known story is about you kind of creating tools or um, creating something around a video game. So can yes. you explain, kind of explain that one and how that all got started? Sure, yeah. So I got into programming uh, because I was really fascinated by um, cheating games. Um, but it wasn't like cheating in the sense that I'm sure you had like a game genie or something, you know, to like cheat codes. It wasn't in the cheat code sense. I was more interested in the, uh, the botting sense. So I was more fascinated by having a computer program pretend to be a human and, and, and legitimately in the sense that it's playing the game and not cutting corners. So I was interested in that. So I played a bunch of games and, and played around with bots. And a lot of people use bots to get ahead. I, I was just more interested in like what the bot could do. Um, and so I found games that were fun to bot rather than fun to play, really, just were more challenging to bot. Um, and eventually I just realized that I just had this weird moment, I guess as a 12-year-old, I happened to be as I was 12, where I was double-clicking an EXE and I was on Windows. And I was like double-clicking an EXE and I, I just re realized that someone had to have made this thing. And why couldn't it be me? So I started Googling around for basically how to make an EXE. And that led me to, to figuring it out. And uh, I wrote Visual Basic for a couple of years. And so part of that story, you also got a, uh, a cease and desist letter. I can share that one part of my history with you because when I was in, when I was in college, I got a uh, cease and desist from uh, the guy, a guy at Platinum Computers who actually ended up getting bought out by Computer Associates. I think his name was Flip or Phil, Flip Filikowski or something. Uh, scared the living tar out of me when I got yeah. the letter. Uh, I was a bit older than you, right? I got my first cease and desist when I was roughly 19. You got yours at 13? Yeah, I was pretty sure I was going to jail. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, those are just uh, those are just really rude ways of saying, please stop. Um, yeah. So, you know, you go on, you, the great stories about, you know, your parents being like, okay, stop, stop doing that. Let's get a real job. Um, you, it, you know, and it kind of evolves into college and what, you know, this is a really interesting part. So at college you start, is that your next kind of big foray into development and it kind of quiet down in between 13 uh, to 18 or? No, there's just a lot of failures in between then, uh, which I guess don't make good press. So they didn't write about them, but yeah, oh, I, I never, I always loved it. So I would used to. I used to go to school, you know, get off around 3, 3.30. Um, I played sports, so I had practices a little bit later, but then I'd run home and just program for as long as I could until my parents made me go to sleep, basically. And so as part of college, this is really interesting to me, especially given that we've all seen the Facebook movie. Um, you know, when, uh, when Mark goes to college and develops an application that kind of hacks up on uh, websites, he gets in trouble... Uh, from the university and eventually kind of mm -hmm. sort of almost gets kicked out. Uh, fast forward roughly five years, you're, I mean, you know, I guess maybe they've learned from that or, or maybe it was just a better college. You do something very similar. So, you know, you, you somewhat um, developed a process or automated the process of enrollment, which was a nightmare. I had to do mine on a rotary phone practically. Um, and so it was horrible and you never got the classes you wanted because it took so long. Um, yep. so tell us about that whole experience. And obviously, you know, articles saying you made 500,000 bucks a year doing that in college is really cool. Uh, so tell us, tell us more about that experience and why the university didn't react negatively. Sure. Um, I guess the one correction I made was it was, uh, 
it was it was about a half a million dollars over the course of its life. Okay. Uh, they they messed that up, but it made for good press, so they kept it. I like the story. Um, but uh, besides that, I mean, it was still a lot of money. And uh, and besides that, I, University of Washington is a great school. That's the school I went to. But uh, no, I don't. I think it was legally gray. Um, my co-founder actually, we didn't even know each other at the time, was planning to do the same thing, and he asked for permission from the university, and they said definitely no, no way. Um, whereas I just did it. Uh, and and he sort of regrets that, knowing uh, how well it did. But um, I just did it, and I, I tried really hard though to maintain anonymity. So I didn't. There was no about page on the website. I didn't advertise that I was the person doing it. Uh, a lot of times I'd be. I was a computer science major, and and so a lot of times I'd be in class or in a lab or something, and actually hear people talking about the tool, um, not realizing you know I was the person who made it because I I tried really hard to to hide it. So the difference is you didn't put your name at the very top like Mark, and that's yeah, that's why I, they didn't bother you too much. No, I knew it was I knew it was uncertain territory, so I left it alone. And they let it they let it run for the course of your entire like entire college career, or? Uh, just about six years. Yeah, so college and then two years out of college, I kept running it. Is it still where where does that project exist today or is it I believe it still works but they so they came out with a, a copycat basically um, which was really frustrating to me not from uh, not from the perspective that they stole the business out of it that didn't bother me too much I kind of figured that was coming I'm surprised it didn't come sooner but uh, what was frustrating was that the method that I used for uh, this course notification stuff is is the only method I could, given I wasn't like compliant with the federal regulations of, of securely accessing student information, and I wasn't the university. And when they went around doing it, they just copied exactly what I did. When they could have done so much better, because they own the registration system. So instead of basically what mine did is, when there was an opening, I would just text message you because I couldn't register for you because that violated a bunch of laws, and I couldn't have your student personal information that violated a bunch of laws. Like I, There was no way I could personally identify you based on what you gave me. Um, and what they have is they're behind the firewall. So they could technically be like, tell me what class you're on. When there's an opening, we'll have a queue, and I'll just put you in and the first person that asked. But instead, they went with the text message route, which just really doesn't make sense to me. But hey. So, so Mitchell, um, so you went to school for computer science. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had uh, the the former CEO of Docker on, Steve Francia, and I, if I remember correctly, he was a philosophy major, right, Brian? Yeah. So um, you know, his 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 take on philosophy was it it taught you how to think. Um, he truly believed in in that as being very foundational to uh, to his success. Um, so again, you went to school for computer science. Um, when you went in, to me, it sounded like you know you probably had a lot of the certainly the development fundamentals down. Did you did you take anything away? Um, was that degree um, beneficial to you and what you expected, or or was it just a piece of paper at that point? Yeah, I, uh, it was super beneficial. Um, I went in there being sort of a uh, a little bit arrogant about being like, yeah, I've been programming for a while. This is going to be a walk in the park. Um, but, you know, I had the practical skills. Well, I had beginner-level practical skills. But what I really learned uh, uh, throughout college is actually a couple things. One is 
a form of how to think, I would say. I would say philosophy is definitely, like, generically how to think. Um, but uh, I, I got to think, how to think like a computer scientist, I guess. Um, it was, uh, you know, the theory part is really actually important, comes up day to day. And then um, the second part I learned is, is how to read, find, read, and appreciate academic papers and research. Um, and that's been and crucial to sort of HashiCorp's uh, growth of being ahead of other people in the industry. Um, and yeah, I tweeted, like, yeah, that was probably a couple of years ago, a year ago, I tweeted something like, it's amazing how, how I, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically like, it's amazing how my computer science degree helps me every day, or helps me almost every day. And, and I got, this one person gave me this like snarky response that, uh, I don't remember that either, the specifics, but it was basically a snarky response about how like, you're just saying that because you went to school, it's actually useless or something. Um, or, and then he was like, show me where it actually helped. And then I was, and then I linked to a bunch of things. I linked to three things within like 10 seconds where I was like, well, uh, like this distributed system, uh, Terraform is actually architected as a compiler and is a compiler. Um, and then uh, we use graph theory all over the place. So like I showed him like three really quick examples. So uh, I would say it was super helpful. Yeah. No, yeah. that's awesome. I actually noticed when you put out your uh, demographics from HashiConf, uh, you put a disclaimer at the bottom about the, um, I guess, the reliability of the sample based on um, who actually responded. I don't know if that was you or somebody on your team. I thought it was pretty credible to have a, a post about the demographics, which I noticed all of them are older than, or like 75% of the customers were older than you, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, that the at the bottom there was a disclaimer that said, look, this is not a real sample. It's as close as you can get to one. But just FYI, I, I assume that's part of kind of your, your code or your creative of, you know, all of those type of things. Or I don't know what perhaps. graph theory is. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps. Uh, the the big benefit also is we it's attracted, uh, yeah, really good talent um, for engineering that we could hire. Yeah, and you guys do a really good job of uh, featuring them. Like I was looking through blog posts on uh, your your website, right? And it was actually harder to find a press release type <laughs> blog post than it was to find a we've hired this really talented engineer blog post. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat. And I mean, obviously right now you guys are not gigantic where you can kind of do that. It'll be interesting to see as you grow past, you know, 20, 25, you know, 50 people, whatever it is, where that, uh, that dynamic changes um, from an organizational perspective. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it, right now you're focused on the developers. Um, you know, even when I was reading Crunchbase about you guys and it's, you know, it's like one to 10 developers or so the amount of stuff that you guys have put out with such a small team is, is uh, really interesting um, to find out as we researched you. So sorry, Brian, I know we had some other, some other questions. No, not at all, man. I, you know, so, you know, moving on from college, right? I mean, uh, you're done with college. Um, you, you have moved on to obviously be the co-founder and CEO of, of HashiCorp. So talk to me about that kind of progression, right? I mean, you're developing in school, before school, you graduated, you're, you're working, you're, make, you're making Vagrant at the same time. So kind of talk to me about that evolution. Um, yeah, I, so I, I never had an uh, intention to start uh, a company, I guess, uh, which might be funny to say because I've always started these little businesses. Um, but I, those, are, you know, those are a lot different than I always liked doing things on the weekend and trying to make money from them just because it sort of made it more seemingly worthwhile, even though I did it because I loved it. Um, but starting like a real, you know, over over 10 people uh, to start at least multi-million dollar sort of startup, like that was never really my plan. 
Um, so I got a job out of college. I worked at that job, and I worked on Vagrant on the side, like you said. And um, a couple of years into it, a few years into it, uh, the the major catalyst is that I was spending about an equal amount of time between Vagrant and my job. Um, and that's not to say I was spending little time at my job. So I was spending about a full eight-hour day at my job, eating dinner, going home, and then working till one or two in the morning on Vagrant and uh, it wasn't bothering me from like a work amount perspective. It was more, it was more just me realizing it's not a good life balance, um, and uh, you know I couldn't, I wasn't hanging out with friends as much because I felt like I had to get this this vagrant stuff done because uh, it was it was growing in popularity and I felt an obligation, um, and so I just had to make a decision of whether. Um, to to quit and do that full time or keep my job and of course I quit and did did that full time um, and and that was sort of how it started. So I definitely want to dig into into Vagrant and and how um, you know what the impetus was for it, like if there was something missing. Um, but first, what I want to do just kind of use the the segue, right? Your your computer scientists uh, at the core. Um, so we do a segment every week called This Week in Tech History and person we're going to talk about um, is a computer science major. So this week in October in 1969, um, just months after the first manned uh, moon landing, the ARPANET, which is, as we all know, is the grandfather of the World Wide Web, um, was brought to life by a gentleman um, by the name of Charles Klein. So he was actually trying to send uh, the phrase or the word login uh, to a computer 350 miles away. Um, but he was only able to get the L and the O out before the computer or the system crashed. Um, so the intercommunication. So the, 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 the thought was that this first message was actually short for hello. Um, it's actually not true. It was short. You know, he only got part of it out on the <laughs> login. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, so this guy, you know, he was just, he was uh, in school, computer science major, had no idea what he was truly working on, but ended up being, you know, a bit of an uh, uh, an icon in the industry. Um, so if you, you know, if you started working just early, early on on projects, um, is there someone, you know, call it from your, you know, um, uh, you know, I'd say teenage years. Was there something, that, someone at that point that you that you looked up to in terms of an icon? And then, if you move forward into today, who is someone um, that you that you aspire to to be? Yeah. Um, so I think that growing up, I mean, even through it into college, basically, and, and maybe even towards the end of it, uh, my icons were were no specific people, and more so like. Uh, large open source contributors, um, and I'll, I can name a few, like people like um, John Resig, or uh, who's the creator of jQuery, or um, Yehuda Katz, who's, who's who's not the well, he might have created a bunch of things now, but he was just a prolific uh, core committer on Ruby on Rails and jQuery, actually, um, actually the creator of Ember. So you know, he continues to do a lot of work. Um, uh, those sorts of people. Um, were inspirational to me because I really loved open source. I still do today, um, and being able to work on it that much is just really interesting. Actually, my personal statement uh, to uh, for my application to the University of Washington computer science program um, was uh, at the the final paragraph is is basically like why I want to be a um, or what I would do 
if I got a computer science degree, what my goals are. And, and I wrote down that my goal would be um, to be able to release my work as open source and be able to work on it full time, uh, which is kind of what I've been doing. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's what it was. I, I, don't, I think that today um, I'm much, much more impressed or in awe and, and look up to um, just, I guess, these technical geniuses of the day um, I would say like Jeff Dean at Google, uh, actually all these people are at Google, uh, <laughs> Jeff Dean at Google, you know, created basically everything that Google has as a core system. Um, Russ Cox that works on the Go team, but that's, that's a really terrible background for him. He's just prolific as well. Um, these sorts of people, they just, I look at them and they, they sort of instantly come up, they seemingly instantly come up with the correct, very difficult technical solution or very correct solution to very difficult technical problems um, and that's yeah that's super exciting so Mitchell you, you know you've, you've mentioned go and, and I got to say we've had a uh, a bunch of guests on that and go has come up as just kind of a topic um, a lot of a lot of projects are being rewritten in go um, what is your what's your take on go and, and where it's going no pun intended geez yeah <laughs> uh, I like to I, I actually I gave an interview for some press thing, and and what I said there is what I'll say here is is I think that Go is just painfully pragmatic, um, and I say painfully because for some people it's really great, and for people who are language enthusiasts, uh, it's really frustrating because Go doesn't do anything really novel. Like it's even its channel system isn't particularly novel. What they ended up doing was trying to figure out what are the what are the features in a language that that make us productive as programmers, um, and and what are the features? How has they gotten better since like the seventies? But otherwise, throw everything else away, like uh, throw a lot of the innovation away because maybe the innovation wasn't very practical or pragmatic. And so, I think that's how I would describe Go. So, if you want to get things done, it's a great language. If you want to learn a lot about different programming paradigms, which is also important, um, goes really not the best one. Okay. Um, so I, I'm not going to claim to be any expert, just just like to get the opinion of, of the experts that are out there. Um, <laughs> you you did bring, um, you know, uh, a word up, Streamline. Um, and so let's go back to Vagrant, right? So Vagrant, it, did, it, did it come out of uh, a necessity? Was there something deficient in your day-to-day -day activity or is this just something that, like, how did it come up? Yeah, um, so in college, my full-time job, I had a full-time job on, on the side of, uh, of being a student um, and was being a developer at a, a, like a junior developer at a consultancy, uh, a larger consultancy. And what I was frustrated about was obviously being, having a full-time job and being a student, uh, my time was pretty strapped um, when it came to work. Like, I didn't, I could, I didn't have a lot of time to, to mess around, like if I had to work on something, I just had to be able to context switch into it and do it and then get out. And I was wasting what I felt like I was wasting a lot of time on creating uh, the development environments uh, for the different customers that we had or different clients that we had because uh, we supported very cutting edge software stacks. So the versions were changing a lot and the versions meant that the interfaces were changing a lot. It wasn't super stable, so different Rails versions, different database versions, but different database types as well. And and getting that all running on my local machine next to each other was a nightmare. Um, so I 
I thought Vagrant might work. I thought I, I didn't have a lot of experience with virtual machines, but virtual machines seemed like the way to do it, so I decided to give it a shot. Um, and and I was working prior to Vagrant. I was working a little bit in virtual machines. I tried to do it manually, like using the UI. It's just going back to sort of my botting days and like the small business I started. It's just super not my personality. When I was clicking around the UI, I was like, "This is not the way." So I decided to to try to automate it. And and that I mean that automation word, right? There's actually an article where you were kind of you describe you self describe yourself as automation obsessed, right? So is that the um, is that the kind of the background driver for uh, HashiCorp as a whole? Is uh, look, if we can automate it, we're going to. If we're gonna if we can make all of these lives better, we're gonna make it where it's kind of sustainable and repeatable. Or have you branched out from just automation into other tools? Uh, or where do you see yourselves going? Yeah, the, yeah. I, I like to describe myself as automation obsessed because I looked back as a reflection exercise. I sort of did a, like maybe five years ago now, where I realized that a lot of a lot of what I did, what I've done professionally, has has always been motivated by automating something. And I think that the motivation for that is really that I think that humans are are is this gets a little bit deep in a way, but <laughs> I think that humans are really good at being creative engines. We're, we're really creative. We're emotional. Um, we're able to uh, make art. But I think that what computers are good at doing is rote tasks, repeated tasks, um, doing things correctly. And, and humans necessarily actually aren't good at that. If you, do, if you ask a human to do something a thousand times, they make mistakes. And a computer doesn't make a mistake. And so I like to try to build things so that I could focus on the creative aspect of things, which in my field I would consider designing new solutions, figuring out how they could work better with people, figuring out the next thing to solve. Um, and I didn't want to accrue basically wasted time by doing something that a computer uh, would be uh, exceptionally better than me at. And so, you know, let's, the other thing we talked about there, right, is that you're now taking code and doing rote tasks which sounds a lot like another thing you've talked about, which is infrastructure as code, right? Yep. Um, so, and you know, I'm trying to break this down here. We talk about DevOps and the whole idea of developer operations and there's all the four pillars of DevOps type stuff. Um, is infrastructure as code a, um, a large subset of that? Is it a small subset? Are there parts that don't get covered by um, having the infrastructure be automated that then gets covered by other tools that are outside of the stack you're working on? Uh, are you focused on a key portion? So what exactly do you call infrastructure's code versus the larger kind of DevOps conversation? Sure. Um, I don't think, I mean, I, I actually, yeah, no, I, I, I personally do think that in, uh, infrastructure's code are more generally, uh, which is more important, codification or codification, however you want to pronounce it. I'm, I'm, I, I firmly believe that that's necessary for DevOps. Um, I, I don't think the DevOps definition, as most DevOps experts um, might claim it, I don't think that would be part of it, but I think that it's necessary to get there. And I think that what infrastructure as code is, or what, what I believe codification is, 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 is everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis for that thing, not in life, but for that thing, uh, for DevOps, is, is everything you do able to be described as code? Because the thing is, if it, if it can't be described as code, it means that it's, it's a manual process. And then, so the question then is, does it have to be a manual process, or should it be a manual process? Um, and the answer to that is very rarely yes, um, currently, today. 
Um, there's very few things where you're like, this just really has to be a manual process. There's some people that say things like, oh, the database failover should be a manual process because it's scary. But because it's scary part uh, is because we don't trust the computer yet because we haven't had automation that's good enough to do it re reliably. So I don't think that it's necessarily like this actually fundamentally has to be manual. It's just that it has to be manual because I'm still better at it than, than a computer in the general case. And so that's where I try to get to to fix. And another thing with infrastructure is code. And you, you talked about this, I think, in your France uh, or your yeah your keynote in France um, was you know if you have if you develop all of your you know call it your runbooks and your dependencies and everything it's all it's all there. No one can take it with them when they leave the organization. Um, you yeah. don't have to worry about about that happening because everything's built in. Um, so maybe maybe just kind of cover a bit more about why why that's important and, and how it benefits an organization. Yeah, I I this was more very specific to ops as I sort of grew up in that industry. I, I just realized that ops is this weirdly um, it's kind of like folklore. It's like weirdly word of mouth culture to educate uh, new hires and 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 pra best practices. Like it's hard to Google best practices for a lot of things, or it's stuck in a lot of other junk um, and. And so when I when I started working at a place as ops person, and then when we hired people subsequently after that, there would just be this huge long like a year like to absorb a hundred percent of how the ops worked. Uh, you'd get a majority of it within the first week, but like really to understand like every system and be like, why is this weird thing here? Um, took like a year. And what I'd rather do is hire somebody um, and send them a repo, which is sort of what we do at HashiCorp. We have an ops repo which has for us, Packer, Terraform, um, uh, Bash Scripts, Puppet, even um, stuff like that. Like it has everything in there. I'd rather send them a repo and be like, "This is how. If there's any change to the infrastructure, it has to go through this. So this has the full no knowledge of how things work around here. So if uh, it's more efficient for them, but also um, it's more efficient for. I guess in this situation, I wouldn't really quit, but." Um, if I were at a normal job and I were to quit, then it's more efficient for the employer uh, to be able to be confident about about things. So when when you're getting rid of uh, documentation and um, what do you call it, like uh, ingrained processes that you're the only person who have, um, you, you know, the fear there is that you're getting rid of job security, right? So um, what is what would you tell somebody who's like, yeah, when you automate everything, I'm unemployed? Uh, what are you telling people or teaching people as the people part of the DevOps portion? Um, what they're supposed to be doing or what's next for them? Uh, I, I think that there's a couple of responses to that. One is that we're, we're in an industry where there's so much demand that there's sort of there's other things that we should be doing anyway. Uh, like, uh, well, what we, the, the, what we like to say is like if we walk into Tesla, um, which I can't claim as a customer, so if we walk into Tesla, um, what we want to be able to say is all your engineers are 100% of engineers building car or car software right now and then when there's like the one person who uh, is you know he's like no this one person does like patching of our OS's it's like okay well let's stop that because it's not what your company does and so I think that and there's there's I think every company wants to hire more people to work on their core thing they just have to spend money doing this other stuff that could be automated so what I would say to the job security thing is that automation drastically lowers the cost of of whatever that thing is solving because people don't have to do it anymore, but that gives them room, which they definitely want to use. It, or, well, 
I would say, in my experience, definitely want to use to work on their core problem, which is where you'll probably move out to. I, I've never, I've, we've, I've helped companies go from basically 80 person ops teams down to like four or five, and those those 75 people weren't fired; they were just reassigned, and actually usually happier in a way uh, because they get to work on what the company cares about. So they're helping the company make money instead of kind of playing with the back end and turning the knobs and that kind of stuff. Yeah, you could argue that, you know, the infrastructure makes you money too, but I guess more directly make money. Yeah. I guess it's the difference between constantly tuning and touching and tweaking the infrastructure versus making it a well-oiled machine so that you can focus your time on other stuff. Yeah, the biggest pushback I've heard is from people that, um, you know, I really consider kind of, uh, um, I, I, I don't... I don't have a lot of sympathy for these people. Um, people that that want job security in the way that they don't want anything to ever change, um, and that bothers me because, uh, again, sort of, I'm making these really overarching, weird things. Maybe it's because you said the word philosophy. I don't know, but I, I believe that as humans, we've always tried to push things forward and and eliminate friction in one category, create friction in another as we push things forward, and and part of that is change. So. When it's like I want to do the exact same, like click these buttons, these same buttons in the same order for the next like ten years, it's like, well, I'm not here to save you, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I'm sure you probably have your favorite change saying that you have to use for everybody when you have to remind them that it's necessary. Um, so we want to dig in more into uh, your, you, you know, your business and all the tools. Um, again, we say Vagrant a lot. It, it is kind of the beginning. It's the keystone of where you started. Um, is it still your biggest product, or has something else overtaken it? I mean, it's got a it's got a strong name um, and a longer track record than everything else. Is it still kind of your biggest product, or where are things going? Yeah, it's our most downloaded one for sure. Um, but the the primary driver behind that, um, I believe, is that it's the most broad use case. Uh, there's there's a use case for Vagrant for for almost everybody, I guess, in tech and. Whereas we've gotten a lot more focused uh, with our other tools, and they're also in a lot smaller subcategories. So, for example, Vault, which I'll just talk about because you said you're interested in it. Um, Vault is a security-focused tool. It's a secret storage solution, but it's focused at uh, infosec, you know, IT security sort of people. And that, as a sub-industry within our industry, is really small. Like the the maximum number of people that could actually use that thing is really small compared to. Vagrant, which is which you could just say like every developer and operator in the world, which is a much larger pie. So, uh, Vagrant still by absolute magnitude gets the most downloads uh, per month, um, but our other tools, if you measure them differently, are are I would say just as uh, uh, widespread. Like if you measure uh, console in terms of the number of servers it's running on, or if you if you measure Vault by the number of clients that are accessing it. Um, then it starts to reach that scale and actually gets to bigger scale because it's the same thing. The number of computers uh, doing work is more than the total number of developers. So then we start getting a bigger pie. And so is there, when you look at that, right? So uh, Vagrant has a lot of downloads by people using it. Um, and based on, it's got a huge uh, market. Um, is there, when you look at uh, like total market share of your tools versus say, whatever the next best tool may be, or even the better tool, um, where, do, where do the rest of your products uh, rank up, like console and Terraform, versus, I guess, whatever their industry may be, or their little their segment? Yep. Um, we have no, like, it'd be great for an analyst to do something like this, because they could really survey 
a very broad uh, field. We have a bit of a selection bias because we only really see our users or people that want to be our users or were our users. Um, but um, I, I believe that that based on the companies we are talking to, uh, that all of our tools right now are basically leaders in their category, and I'm really lucky about that. Uh, I'm, I'm happy happy about that, and I believe it's lucky. But uh, for now, I think that that's the case, and it, it's. I guess the the hardest one is like Vault, for example, because Vault is the only open source feature complete secret solution out there, really. So when it's so it's it's leader in its category by default, but then it's eating the lunch of commercial companies, which is making some commercial companies pretty unhappy. We got like a, we got an email from from a, a reasonably large like security company that was like, "Why would you do this? Like, why would you make all this free? It, it messes it up. Like, this is not how capitalism works." And I was like, and, and I didn't respond because I was like, "This person's mad." Um, but it was like an employee at the company. It wasn't like the founder. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the same. It's you know, technology has been around a while. Has a period where it, it, it's 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 uh, given a monopoly, and then it gets commoditized. And the commoditization means that the price gets dropped down to zero. And we our tools are trying to force commoditization in certain categories. That's our that's the name of our game. So I like it. So. Um... You know, let's let's talk about. I mean, again, we talked about uh, Vagrant being the uh, the keystone. Yet at HashiConf, you announced Auto, and it's literally called the replacement of Vagrant. So how can you take something? Successor. It's a yeah, different right, word. it's a successor. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I mean, which to me, a successor means the other guy's stepping out and going and playing golf. Um, you know. So w- what is it that? I mean, like, how could you do that to something that's so successful? Sure. Um, so in case, in case people come in right here, I'll just start with the disclaimer and then explain the motivation. So the disclaimer is that Vagrant isn't going away anytime soon. Uh, we have full-time employees on it. We, we don't plan on sunsetting it anytime in the next few years at the very least, but just, there's, there's just no plans to. I mean, I'll explain why that is. So if you're using Vagrant, keep using Vagrant. You're going to be fine. Um, but the motivation behind Auto um, was basically we, so we spent three years at HashiCorp uh, really focusing on on operators, security people, IT people, and uh, making that experience what I believe is pretty great. And and we've always released Vagrant releases throughout the way, but after a few years, uh, I I was talking with Armand, my co-founder, and we're we're looking back and trying to think like, what if we the the the, the um, exercise we're playing was, if I were to make Vagrant today, what would I do differently? Um, and so we were going through this exercise and. And there was three major things I identified as issues, uh, issues or weaknesses in Vagrant currently. Um, the first is that I've noticed just all the Vagrant users that most development environments, the development environments for for popular languages and frameworks, are very very similar. So uh, there's not if you're a Ruby developer and you go find another Ruby developer halfway across the world, uh, your computers in terms of how you work with Ruby are going to be really similar. Um, the deviations are usually like little versions, um, run times, uh, and then your dependencies are different. So dependencies I consider different things like databases and stuff. They change. Um, and then, and with a Vagrant file, it's just difficult to sort of express this commonality. Uh, you you just end up duplicating a bunch of stuff in the Vagrant file. So um, that was sort of a, a weakness I saw. The second one is that is the one that I think everyone is like, you know, amen to is that. Developers want to deploy. Um, 
this has been a feature request of Vagrant for about five years, and, and they developers want the Vagrant Up for development experience to be Vagrant Up to deploy, because Vagrant Up to development is so easy, they want to do that to production. Like, why is production so much harder? Um, and so we tried to do this, actually, a number of times over the years in Vagrant, and it never really worked. Um, and I finally sort of realized why this was, and, and the, the reason is that fundamentally what the Vagrant file is describing cannot describe how to get to production because what you're describing in a Vagrant file is so vastly different from production. You run load balancers in production. You run more monitoring. You, have, um, you don't run debugging tools in production. Um, it's just different, and you can't really mimic that on your local... You, I mean, you can mimic it on your local computer, but you don't really want to because there's just a lot of moving parts there that you don't want to have. That's better for a staging environment or something. So uh, there was really no way for the Vagrant file to get you to production. And then the last thing is that, and this is more trendy in a way, but forward-looking, is that microservices are really the way things are going to be done. Um, I am not going to claim, and I don't claim, um, that microservices are mainstream today. Uh, I think that, but when Vagrant was made six years ago, everything mainstream was monolithic apps. Uh, Service-oriented architecture as a concept obviously existed um, and was done at enterprise levels, but uh, for the most part, all the medium to small size companies were doing monolithic applications, and even the big companies, their service-oriented architecture was, was a handful of services communicating between monolithic applications. Um, so the, the big difference is that today, from small to enterprise, we're moving to this microservice model, which a lot of people uh, kind of like say, like, get off my lawn, this is just service-oriented architecture all over again. And it is, if you, if you squint, um, but what's different about it is we're talking about really, really small components. The microservice-oriented architecture is a really critical part of, part of the word, the micro, um, because instead of seeing scales of where with SOA you would see maybe 10 or 50 services even at the largest scale, um, with microservices you're seeing 10 or 50 at the smallest scale, uh, and then it's going up to some ridiculous numbers at the, at the enterprise. Like if you look at Netflix, the number of services they have is, is astonishing. So um, Vagrant wasn't well designed for this, this state of the world, and so I wanted to design something for that. So that's, that's how Auto came along. And since you, I mean, since you had to bring up microservices, uh, the other thing that came out of HashiConf was uh, Nomad. And okay. when I, and again, when I read it, and forgive me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but when I look at it, it seems to line up a bit with some of the stuff around like Mesosphere and things like that around uh, scheduling and managing microservices at, at the kind of at the the application layer and and doing that kind of stuff. Is it actually intended to help manage your entire deployment environment, or is it is yep. there something I'm missing when I read it? Yeah, absolutely. So schedulers are, um, I mean, they've always been around. Again, it's one of those things where everything old is new again. Um, but uh, schedulers have always been around, the, obviously, in your CPU, but even on a cluster level with mainframes and scientific computing, schedulers have been critical for uh, almost two decades, uh, maybe more. But I would, a lot of the modern, more modern approaches were the past two decades. And... Um, now it's just becoming mainstream necessary because of microservices and because of things like containers. Um, it's become necessary. It, if you have a single monolithic application, you don't need a scheduler because the, to maximize utility on a machine, you just deploy one per machine. <laughs> uh, but when you have uh, 1,000 microservices, okay, that's extreme. So let's just say 50 microservices. Um, you can't run one 
per server because then you have 50 servers that's really expensive for, for probably your scale and, uh, and the utilization across the machine is going to be like 10 to 20% at best. Um, so you really want a scheduler to get you high utilization and to lower the amount of money you're spending uh, on machines. And so, so yeah, so it's a general deployment solution. I think that with Nomad compared to something like Mesos, we've made the most general deployment solution uh, because Nomad could not only deploy containers, uh, but it could also deploy VMs and just jars natively and go static binaries natively and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's a full cluster deployment solution. It's really cool. So if we look at, you know, we've talked about basically four of your main projects, Vagrant, Vault, Nomad, and Auto. Mm-hmm. You've got nine, I think, total, right? So yes, yeah. Packer, Surf. Console, I think we brought up a little bit Terraform and Atlas. Yes. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we talked a lot about automation. Um, the what's the ultimate goal for for HashiCorp? Like, what are you looking? What's your vision for the future for the community you're looking to serve? Uh, the ult- the ultimate goal is that uh, you don't have to think uh, too much about application delivery. You you have to think about it enough in the sense that. Uh, you're going to use our tools. Uh, in, in the same way that when you start a project today, most developers, when they start a new project, you just use Git. Uh, it's not a choice. You don't think about it. And you're not using it because you're forced into it. You're using it because you want to because it's it's sort of the best tool at what it does. Um, and and it works. It never doesn't work. Like Only once in, in the thousands of commits, only once in the past, uh, I guess I've been using Git for eight years now, has it ever corrupted something? Uh, and that was rough, but that was one time. So, I mean, that you just use it in the same way like when you're starting uh, a, a project, whether it's a hobby project or a company, and whether you're a startup or heading into the Fortune 500, uh, we just want you to be like, of course we're going to use console. Like, of course we're going to use Vault. Like, it just is the thing that works, and we know it works at this scale, and it's going to work, and it's stable. Um, and... We don't want that from like a a world domination like perspective. It's more from the perspective of what I went of what I said earlier, which is that if you think less about these problems and they're just solved for you, then you're thinking more about what sh- what I believe you should be thinking about, which is the problem you're solving. So that's uh, that's ultimately where I want to get to. Yeah, it was interesting. I just uh, I held the DevOps day here in Phoenix, Arizona, and. Uh, um, we, we were on site with Choice Hotels and uh, a handful of other customers, but Choice is a PBR shop. Um, they use some agile methodologies, and they use a lot of tools that we talk about. Um, what was interesting, the guy, uh, one of their kind of their platform leads, he kicks off the presentation with um, a set of flip-flops sitting on a dock somewhere. And basically the point of it was like, look, I want to get out of the day-to-day my hair is on fire running around chasing all this crap to automating, codifying, and moving up, you know, the business stack to provide more value at that level. And so we can like, you know, we can actually go take a vacation without our pagers or our cell phones and just kind of relax because we we trust what we've what we've built and automated into, you know, into our platforms. Yep. Yeah. That's the dream. So I need some of that right now. You know, I've got to, I, I work a little bit too hard, so I need some, some, uh, podcasting as code in my life. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's look at this though, right? One of the things, one of the big pictures around this is that developers and all these things, these are cool people with hoodies 
that are starting to exist in, I mean, obviously they exist in startups everywhere, right? You have a startup. I bet nobody has a tie, right? Like nobody has any, you know, everybody wears like hoodies and uh, really cool t-shirts with logos on them and everybody's awesome and smart. For the re- our employees do wear hoodies, but for the record, I personally <laughs> despise hoodies. But <laughs> we could we could get into that later. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's the general picture, and they kind of move up a little bit into some of the uh, small to medium enterprise type businesses. When you're when you're looking at something like HashiCorp, and obviously at some point you you know you are open source, but you have to monetize it, and those big those big enterprises that can really benefit from the efficiencies that you're trying to sell. Um, are the hardest ones to kind of change their culture and their process. Um, what is it you see in a big enterprise when you talk to them that kind of changes the conversation? How do you wake them up? How do you kind of, what do you look like when you talk about their legacy environments versus what you're trying to do today? How do you drag that anchor along? Um, what are those conversations like? Uh, they're, they're not too hard. We don't, we're not, we're not the ones paving the, uh, paving the, I guess, cultural, path there's you know the devops movement it started before our company so it's been in full swing um a lot of other companies are are carrying the microservice torch from a cultural perspective uh namely like pivotal for example is really carrying that torch uh, so when we come into companies uh, oh nice sure uh when we come into companies uh uh we don't have to sell them on the culture uh we just we just have to uh, explain how our tools help them achieve uh, their goals, um, and whether their goals are we want to do more DevOps, like we want to be more of a DevOps organization. Whether that's the goal or the goal is just we need to be more stable, um, regardless of what the cultural practice is. We sort of want to come in and have a, a solution for that from a technical perspective. Um, we have a cultural bias in, in a lot of ways, like in terms of how we believe DevOps should be done, but we're we're practical. So one of our core tenants that we blogged about is that we're practical. So if we come in and you're like, nope, we do waterfall. We have no interest in DevOps, like none of it. Uh, we run not mainframes. We can't support mainframes, but you know we run a physical data center, no cloud in our future, that sort of thing. Then we're still going to try to work with you. Um, I went into a a, a big. Uh, I'm confident that sort of every developer would know a company last week that. Um, is super super successful and and they have no cloud plan like at all like uh, by design they they don't see the benefit they don't want cloud what they have works for them they make a ridiculous amount of money they don't care um, and so they're still adopting Vault and console and Terraform and it and it and it's okay with us. <laughs> yeah, good job, Blockbuster. <laughs> so okay, so we we, we talked about. Um, you know, the projects, the the reason why, the ultimate goal. So let's talk about customer success stories, right? So I'm going to ask for uh, a non-referenceable customer. But if you say no, then let's move on to a referenceable one. But uh, love to hear how you've gone into to a company, to an organization, um, whether they're friendly culturally or not, um, and how you've helped them succeed. And, and what did that what did that transition look like and how long did it take? Sure. Okay. Let's use. Um, I'll I'll reference a customer. Um, so let's use uh, Twitch as an example. So Twitch is one of our bigger users. Um, and to start, I, I was just watching Bob Ross this morning. I love it. 
So they, <laughs> they're doing all four, something like 400 episodes of Bob Ross right now. Oh, interesting. Sorry. Okay, I, was, I was like, why is Bob Ross on Twitch? Okay. Uh, but I guess our starting point is already very friendly. So our starting point when we enter any company is that we know that they use our tools or they've reached out to us. So they already sort of know who we are from some level, uh, whether it's just Vagrant or just console or whatever it is, uh, they already know who we are and they're, we're not coming in and they're not like, they're not thinking who's this vendor coming to pitch us. It's really like, oh, they make this stuff we already use. So let's hear what they have to say. So it's already very friendly to start out with. But um, Twitch is a particularly interesting company because they're very, very large um, and they're very, very technical. And so uh, for us, the challenge when we walk into a company like that is proving that our tools could work at their scale and that our tools will satisfy their technical requirements. Um, so usually what we do is we, we, we don't put up the deck and pitch the entire portfolio. We ask them. We have a conversation where we ask, Okay, what are your big what what's causing your your hair to be on fire right now? Like, what what is your biggest issue um, right now, or what are your biggest issues? Because maybe we can't solve the top one, but uh, what are your biggest issues? And um, in Twitch's case, it was service discovery. Um, service discovery was a huge problem, and so um, for them, we uh, talked about console a lot. We uh, we went over its features, we went over its architecture, and they were sold on the idea. And I think that's that's the idea part is the easy part because they're telling you that that's their biggest problem. So they've already sold themselves to the fact that they need a solution in this space. So they were already sold the idea. So then the hard part is, okay, console has to run on every machine in our data center. Uh, we're you know one of the top 100 websites in the world. Okay, how is this going to work out of the box? Like very, very few open source projects work out of the box at that scale. Um, so then you enter technical due diligence. You don't just wing it. Um, but... Uh, with with Twitch, it it did end up working, and actually that was critical. And that that's one of our strategies is that we design and work with the largest scale companies to begin with, um, because we want to be able to go into a Twitch and and have them not believe it's going to work, and us claiming it is, but not trying too hard, because we want them to when they try it, just be impressed that it works at that scale. Um, and it's really the quickest way to the technical hearts of people. Um, and then zero downtime and solving a solution is really the quickest way to the more management side of the of the table. So uh, sort of in we really quickly try to just win both sides so that we have net promoters everywhere. Um, because you very rarely, for example, get a developer that's like, I want Oracle, I want Oracle. But then the manager's like, I want Oracle because I won't get fired and, and we have a number to call. So we're trying to not make that imbalance. We're trying to keep it balanced. Um, and that's really how it goes. And then the the final piece of the puzzle is um, once they start using it, they they both agree that they like our tools and they like the problems it solves. So then we start pitching the whole portfolio and start seeing where else they could go. So to f answer your final question in terms of timelines, um, usually it takes for for a company like Twitch's size, it'll take us six to eight months even uh, to get the first HashiCorp tool fully deployed in production. Um, it's pretty arduous and slow, uh, but then to get four or five out of the eight or nine um, projects that we have um, really only takes maybe four, another four to six months after that. So you kind of get them in there as a basis and then um, you can layer on all the other services along with it. Yep. Sounds like that's pretty cool. Um, and so, you know, one of the things is, I was really fascinated by this when we talk about working with big corporations, 
Um, you guys uh, were actually on the press release around VMware's Photon. Uh, and you guys like day zero, um, you know, had a, um, a vagrant, uh, packaging of photon so that people could play with it. It was in Atlas ready to go. So, I mean, was this something where you guys heard about it or heard it through the rumor mill? You got homies in San Francisco and somebody <laughs> told you over at a bar, they were like too drunk and started telling the secrets <laughs> or, I mean, did, did, did VMware call you guys and go, look, everything you've done so far, we love it. We want you to be on, on the ground floor with this and we want to get this out. Like how did that go? Uh, so with with all the major, uh, we call them technology partners. Uh, we we have a we have a partnership. So Microsoft, uh, AWS, Amazon, um, VMware, um, Google are the big ones right now for us. And so we have a relationship with them. So they they came to us and let us know that this was under development, and we offered um, as part of the partnership to. Uh, Try to you know mutually give something that helps us and helps them. So for us, it's good because you know getting vagrant and getting vagrant or any of our tools in a press release of, of, of Fortune 500 is Fortune 500 is always good for a smaller company. Um, and for them, it's beneficial because we sort of reach an audience that they necessarily aren't reaching right now. So yeah. And so I mean, now you're dealing with Fortune 500s. Uh, you are a, a completely open source company. Um, you've got some, you know, you've got some venture funding that's, uh, almost a year old now. Um, what is the, I mean, is your monetization completely support based? Is it subscription based? How are you guys going to monetize it going forward? I mean, at some point, right, this is cap, this is how capitalism actually works. <laughs> how are you taking this open source stuff that people can go take and use for free and turning it into a revenue stream for Hashi and your, uh, and your backers? Yeah. Um, so, uh, we touched on it briefly, but Atlas is our is our primary uh, is our is our commercial product. So um, we all our open source the eight out of the eight eight open source projects are completely free, liberally licensed, not open core. Um, they just are open, um, and that's part of our strategy to commoditize the tools layer. Um, we're trying to make all the tools free um, and free open source and just as good, if not better, than any commercial offerings in that layer. Um, and then what we're trying to charge for is one layer up, which is what we what we call the orchestration layer. Um, we built a commercial closed source product there um, that that uses all eight of our tools together um, in order to get you from development to production. Because we didn't make eight tools that each do separate things that have no relation to each other. We didn't build uh, you know like a, a I don't know self cooking application somehow and then a, vague, a development environment application. Like we built. These tools in a way that that you could use Vagrant for development, use Packer to build your deployment images, use Terraform to start your servers, use Nomad to deploy your application, use Console to service discover, use Vault to store secrets. Like there's a path, and there's a reason they sort of all exist. And what Atlas does is brings them together and gives you the the complete path, so you don't have to build it yourself. So you could just get Atlas and start deploying things, and it uses all these open tools underneath. So you're basing your application delivery on a very open um, foundation, very completely open set of tools, um, and it's really just the glue in between uh, that that is commercial and closed source. So um, all the formats, intermediary formats of configuration of how things are being built, um, the output formats of things, those are all open uh, sort of things. So you could, uh, hopefully you wouldn't, but you could walk away from Atlas and you still could build that pipeline yourself, basically. Uh, because all the all the infrastructures code you wrote is based on open source tools. 
Okay. And and Brian brought up, you know, you guys are uh, in Series A funding. Uh, that was a little over a year ago. Um, what's the what's the whole venture capital, you know, the VC funding movement been like for you guys? Is it, you know, how big is your company now today? If you how many? How many uh, we just passed thirty people. Thirty people. So who's dealing with all these, you know, the the VC funding uh, boards and all that stuff? Uh, me and my co-founder. So uh, in terms of Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley loves uh, founder-run companies. That's like at least. I would say maybe a long time, but I haven't been in Silicon Valley that long. Uh, but that's they they do not like, especially at an early stage, external management coming in to, to run a company. They really want founder-run companies, and um, I follow a lot of Silicon Valley like VC-like people on Twitter, and and they tweet all the time about how like if you look at the unicorns, which are kind of like the darlings of the Silicon Valley of, of Silicon Valley, which are the companies worth over a billion dollars. Like if you look at Uber um, or Dropbox or uh, Evernote uh, or something like that. Um, they're all founder run. The CEOs are all still founders, um, and so they believe really deeply in that. So um, me and Armand uh, are uh, we go to the board. We navigated the VC waters to raise the funding. Um, we've been learning how all this stuff works over the past few years, and uh, yeah, it's that, it's interesting. So you, I mean, you went out, did you pitch to multiple investors? Did you kind of uh, pick a couple that you felt safe with based on other things? Or how did you actually, if you navigated the waters yourself, um, how did you go about kind of uh, doing that experience? Yeah, uh, it's a hybrid of both. So we, there was, there was a few investors I knew, um, a number I knew that uh, through friends or through living when I lived in San Francisco, just meeting them. Uh, so I talked to them first, uh, talked to the ones I wanted to first, um, and then, uh, but also it's not, very, it's just not very smart to, to, to not see what all the options are out there. So um, we also pitched to some we've, we've never talked to before and, and tried to see what, what they liked. Ultimately, we went with two, two firms that we've known for quite a while and we've known the partners there that invested in us for quite a while. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that's always going to be the case, given that I've, my sample size is one <laughs> of doing it. But uh, yeah, that's how it worked out for us. You just watch enough Shark Tank, and I think you're you're prepared for uh, for going in front of those boards. No big deal. <laughs> so, is there? And so, when you were doing that, did you get a um, maybe a larger offer from somebody you didn't trust as much from a from a venture experience, uh, or did you know? And as they've now come over and take a bit of ownership. Um, do you feel like they are in your business in an appropriate level? Do you have any sort of, you know, like where is that going for you and how, how well is that going? Yeah. Yeah. This is the, uh, it's, it's weirdly important when you don't want it to be important question about, uh, raising venture capital, um, that every founder has to deal with, which is the, how much ultimately though, the simplest way to put it is how much of my company am I selling and for what price? So, uh, we got bigger offers, yeah, but the bigger offers were at the same valuation, so that means that they're taking a bigger piece of your company for that offer. It's you know, it, the basically like if you're given twenty million dollars on an eighty million dollar company, they want twenty five percent. But if you're if the offer is twenty million on forty versus ten million on forty, then the ten million wants twenty five percent, the twenty million wants fifty percent. So that's really how you navigate those two different things. Um, and for us, it was a lot less about the money that. Silicon Valley is pretty good about making it a pretty stringent range of things. Uh, there, it's it's a lot less of an art, I guess, than a lot of people expect. Which is, if 
for our company, it was all we, we raised ten million on the Series A, and all the offers were within the um, I would say eight to twelve or thirteen million dollar range. Um, but the so really, what it comes down to is um, who are you going to work with, and and how far is that money going to take you? Because do you need eight million dollars? Because that person who wants to invest eight million dollars is is going to do some serious work in terms of helping you make the right connections and teaching how to run the business so that you're more efficient so that you don't need the other two million dollars um, or, or or the inverse which is like you you take the 12 but that person is useless um, so you're gonna make a lot of mistakes and it's gonna cost you millions of dollars you're gonna basically burn money and uh, and and you're and you would have been better off with the eight so that's sort of how we uh, took a look at things and we felt that the people we were getting uh, to join us for ten million dollars or were were the most probable to to help us. Oh, good. So uh, you know they're they're providing guidance. They're not just providing money. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's the that's really so. Our that was our key motivator. Um, when we won in the raise, we were actually profitable. So uh, we needed money for sure to grow faster. But um, our biggest thing was we wanted someone to. Given that Armand and I have both never run a venture run company before, uh, we wanted someone to help us not make mistakes. Okay. So you brought up a, a couple, you know, other tech companies. You brought up Uber, for instance. Um, not what I would necessarily call a tech company, um, in, in the sense that I'm going to ask you. Um, in in your world, what are other technologies or innovations that are that are on your radar today? And of those, are you utilizing any of those internally, or just messing around with them? Sure, um, I think. I guess the most practical one that I'm interested in right now is is the evolution of the monitoring space. Um, I think monitoring and alerting is still pretty sad. So just, but there's a lot of companies trying to solve it. Yeah, so it's, a, it's I, atrocious. Uh, we'd love it if you solved it. Yeah. So I, I'm mostly we're not solving it right now in terms directly. Console is an up down monitoring thing, but we're not solving telemetry or stuff like that right now. Um, so I'm just keeping an eye on stuff. Um, not committing to any particular solution in, in particular, but um, a couple that I like I like the ideas of, whether they whether they vet out to be really good products, I don't know, but the couple that I like are InfluxDB as a time series, a general purpose time series database. Um, and then uh, the other one is a lot newer, is Sysdig, which is a really just efficient, I, I think, kernel level um, system metrics tool, so CPU, memory, file handles, things like that. Um, they probably do more now, but that's how they started, and it's just their architecture from a technical perspective is really uh, interesting to me. So those two are like the ones that I look at, uh, but there, there's there's a lot more, and so I think that's the practical and the impractical one that I always like to look at is just I don't know new languages, new hypervisors, um, things like unikernels. Um, I like to just keep an eye on those things, but they're not mainstream anytime soon. I would say. And it, well, anytime in the next twelve months, which is soon for for this industry right now. Okay. And so, you know, as far as are you guys starting to when you do these innovations? I mean, you mentioned a couple of them already, and you've hired um, just in the last year. You've hired looks like roughly twenty people over roughly 12, 12 month span. Are some of those people that you've seen in the open source community that may have a project that you like? that you're bringing in and kind of incubating into a Hashi type project as, you know, I like that. I want to bring the lead contributor in and let's make this a product and, and, you know, maybe kind of put it as part of the portfolio or are you doing a hundred percent internal incubation of your projects? 
Uh, so we do 100% internal. We build everything out internally um, 100%. There's definitely different companies out there that acquire all their technology. Um, uh, if you took a, take a look at some portfolios of companies, um, it's like, wait, so they only built two out of these seven things on their own. Um, but we've built all nine of our things have from first line of code to first release and onwards have been completely uh, self-written by the company. But on that same time, once we write it, then we do go out and try to find people um, to work on those things. So a great example is Nomad, actually. Um, I like to say that there's, ac there's really only 50 people in the world that know how to write a scheduler, and so we need to find them. <laughs> and, uh, and we recently hired someone named Diptanu. Um, he wrote the scheduler for Netflix. Um, he was the lead architect on Netflix's scheduler, so we hired him. Um, and then Armand was is sort of one of those 50 people just because uh, he used to work for AWS and he wrote a scheduler for them. Um, so he got uh, educated there. It's, it, a scheduler is just one of those weird technologies that um, it's sort of like a file system or, or a kernel or something. You don't, you don't just for fun figure out how to do it and you don't just for fun uh, stumble your way to the right solution. You really need to study um, the research, the prior art and things like that to do it properly. Um, so it's it's just a higher bar of entry. So there's just not that many people that uh, have learned how to do it. So how do you uh, how do you stack up your two of fifty versus say um, Mesospheres or anybody else's uh, scheduler experts? You got you have the <laughs> you have the best two. Do you have number one and number three, or where are you at stack rank? Uh, yeah, I think we have I think we have the best ones. But I think that our I think that our difference is that like is just based on history. It's like look what we've done. Uh, with significantly less employees and significantly less funding in our past uh, six projects, and and the thing is, you could say one or two, one one is lucky, uh, two is lucky, but once you get three plus, there's there's some process there. It's not luck. There, we're making it happen. So, uh, if if you know if I were Mesos or something, uh, I'd find that frightening, honestly. Yeah, I'm I'm highly impressed. Frankly, we, uh, I mean, I knew who you were, and I probably knew twenty five percent of your portfolio from just name and experience, mainly Vagrant, of course, and thanks to <laughs> primarily thanks to EMC Code and all the guys who are putting out stuff that I have to consume. Um, Frank, and that's the neat thing about it, right? I'm not really a developer. I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of other things, but I wanted to play with the stuff. Um, being able to play with Scale.io and a couple of those things because of the Vagrant tools um, yep. made me get to work with doing what I want to do with Scale.io instead of focusing on installing it. Um, was exactly what you're trying to do, right? You're you're trying yeah. to make dumb people like me be able to install Scalia, right? That was like, um, <laughs> That's a little self-deprecating. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think auto's the key part. I think auto's going to be the key part of that. Is basically auto is what turns every developer into a world-class operator without them having to know at all what operations is. This is the well. joke. We're going to have to mark that one and write that, that down. Um, but that, I mean, that's what I thought was cool. And so digging in and realizing that in five years you've deployed less, I mean, roughly five years, really it's been from 2013 till now, you've deployed eight of your nine tools in just under three years. I mean, it's yep. maybe, I don't know what part of 2013 and Packer and Surf came out in, but that's, that's a ridiculous pace. Um, and so I'm in, I, you know, I'm excited to see what else you guys can do. I learned so much. I turned into a fanboy before I was just really intrigued. Nice. Um, so, you know, that's, it's really cool stuff. Um, we spent it, we spent a good amount of your time. We really appreciate everything you've done. Uh, unfortunately we're kind of out of time. So, uh, I think I'm gonna let Brent take us out here. Yeah. So again, Mitchell, thank you again for your time today. It was, uh, uh, we learned a lot and, uh, hopefully our listeners did too. Uh, what's the, what's the next place you're going to be presenting at? 
Uh, well, the next place I'm going to be presenting is probably not the demographic of this this uh, this thing. I'm I'm on an entrepreneurship panel in Stanford uh, next week, but the next real thing is pro. Uh, well, actually, I'm not confirmed, so I can't say. But maybe a, a big tech conference in San Francisco in November. Um, but otherwise, I'll be at Fosdem in January, which is a really fun one. I'm not presenting, but I go. I, this, this will be my fourth year in a row. I go to hang out. So uh, yeah, Fosdem. Okay, and then in terms of finding you online, you're, it's pretty much the same the same handle everywhere, right? Mitchell H. That's at it. Twitter, GitHub, your blog is MitchellH.com. Um, HashiCorp is on YouTube, so you can lo- you can look at or watch a lot of the, your guys, uh, guys and gals presenting, uh, talking about your products and learning more about it. Um, any other any other websites or places that people can can learn more about you, the products, your company? Nope, that's it. Those are them. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to point out that I reached out to Mitchell on about.me because I felt like he probably is gets so much Twitter that I thought I'd never get a hold of him, and uh, he even responded there. So it's <laughs> it's always really cool when people are approachable and make it easy for you to get a hold of them, and it kind of brings the com- the company down to the you know the people and the users. Uh, a very impressive experience um, with even about.me. I had to sign up to call, to holler, but uh, you know it was it was well worth it. Yeah, Mitch, Mitchell only follows 150 people on Twitter, so yeah, you gotta find other it. alternative means. Because I read, I read all of my tweets, so <laughs> I, I found I, even like four years ago, I never followed more than 150 because I found that that was about my limit of being able to actually read them. Okay, fair enough. Well, cool. So, so for all of our listeners out there today, um, please get social with us. Let us know uh, how we're doing, uh, what you thought of our guests, and uh, you know, let us know if you've got any future topics or ideas that uh, you want to talk about. But with that, we're going to shut down the hot aisle today. Uh, again, thanks again, Mitchell, for being on the show. My name is Brent Piatti. I'm Brian Carpenter. Thanks, Mitchell. Thank you very much.